This evening, we inaugurate our series on the infancy narratives of Luke's gospel by looking at the first four verses of the first chapter. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version, 1973 edition, and if you have the place open, you can follow as I read these first four verses. Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you. In consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. This is how Luke begins his gospel. It is called the prologue to the gospel of Luke or the introduction to the gospel. We want to ask the question why he begins this way. And part of the answer to that is in the first century AD Greco-Roman literary culture, it was common to inaugurate a treatise or a work in a manner similar to this. Now I'm going to give you three characteristics of the Greco-Roman convention around the first century, and although I'm not going to be exhaustive, I'm going to use these as points of contact with the similarity of Luke's prologue, and then we'll talk about the uniqueness of Luke's approach. First of all, in the first century A.D. Greco-Roman literary context, a writer would begin his work by nodding his head to the work of his predecessors. That is, those who had also addressed the topic that he was drafting his opus upon. Second of all, he would declare that he had quality eyewitnesses in order to back up his statements, and then he would state the order of the treatise which he was going to unfold. And finally, he would state the purpose of the work, that is, the literary purpose, and the person to whom it was addressed. Now, you will notice there are some similarities to those three points in the first four verses of this gospel. So we ask the question, is Luke following the contemporary or cultural literary convention? Now, to raise that question is to raise a mare's nest of a huge body of literature. The most recent example of which is a major monograph 
by the now emeritus professor at the University of Sheffield in England, Love Day Alexander. She has done a magnificent piece of work in examining these four verses in relationship to, and you see them on your outline, the technical works of the Greco-Roman world, for instance, the treatises on medicine, rhetoric, and things of that type, and the historical works, that is, those works from that era which are biographies or chronologies. Now, Alexander's thesis is that Luke is following the technical work side of this discussion. That is, his prologue reads more like an introduction to a medical book or to a rhetorical treatise. It does not follow the conventions, in her opinion, of the historical works or biographies and chronologies. Now, the book, when she published it, was welcomed with a great deal of praise. But recently, as a result of all scholarly discussion, there's been a reaction against it. And there are those now arguing that she has disjoined the technical and historical work thesis, namely, she has driven a wedge between Greco-Roman literature of the technical side, of the technical type, from Greco-Roman literature of the historical type, and that she has done so artificially. In fact, the most recent criticism of her thesis, in fact, there is very great similarity between both the technical treatises and the historical treatises. And in fact, the three pieces of Greco-Roman convention that I cited above in ABC are common to both. That is, you cannot drive a wedge between the two and say a nod of the head to the predecessor only occurs in the technical works, it doesn't occur in the historical works, it occurs in both. Now, this interesting discussion may seem to have nothing to do with our understanding of this four-verse prologue, but it is crucial to understanding what Luke is about. So we come back to the question, is Luke following contemporary literary convention? There are similarities in those four verses to introductions or prologues to other works of both the technical and historical genre. But Luke is doing something that is not like anything else in the New Testament. And in fact, Luke is doing something that is not like anything else in the Greco-Roman world. Now, I am arguing then that Luke is doing something which is unique. There is nothing like it. There may be elements of similarity in it to other things, but overall, when you take all four verses in toto, he is doing something singularly unique. Well, that's certainly obvious, isn't it? Because it's from the pen of Luke 
who is a unique and singular author. So we would expect a uniqueness in his expression, in his style, in what he's about. In fact, we expect a uniqueness in the fact that we have his style twice over in his two canonical works, Luke-Acts, sometimes by modern scholars hyphenated, Luke-Acts. He's the author of both. Now, the second thing that supports my suggestion that Luke is doing something entirely unique is, of course, the fact that what he writes here and he writes in his two canonical books is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What he records with his pen in the original draft that he wrote is God-breathed revelation, and that is unique. There is nothing like it in the Greco-Roman treatises. But third, or as a sub-point or corollary to that second point, let me underscore the fact that he is not writing about secular heroes or contemporary or old politicians, nor is he writing about scientific matters or rhetorical matters. Luke is writing about a singularly singular life, a singularly singular person, a singularly singular message. That is unique. God-breathed unique. Divinely inspired unique. But the third thing to note is that Luke's prologue is unique because of the narrative style. Now, you may think it's strange for me to suggest that there is a narrative style in this four-verse prologue. You might find it somewhat far-fetched for me to suggest that there is a narrative account in this four-verse prologue. I shall defend that case later on this evening, but in brief, my position is that Luke's gospel is telling a story. It is narrating a history with which Luke's personal story interfaces. This story is a story with which the writer's story interfaces. Thus, Luke draws upon secular literary models while doing something very different. He is not merely mirroring the contemporary literary paradigm with a prologue to his story. He is transcending the paradigm with a prologue to the eschatological story. If you will, we have a Lucan prologic inception to a narrative which from the beginning involves him and his reader in an eternal story. And that is not Greco-Roman convention.
Now, to whom does he address the gospel? You notice in the verse 3, he addresses it to Theophilus. Where else do we encounter Theophilus? Where else is he mentioned in Scripture? Does anyone know? Acts chapter 1, the first verse. So keep your finger in Luke 1 and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What is that first account that he composed? It is the Gospel of Luke. Until the day when he, that is Jesus, was taken up, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. It's a very important phrase in Luke's gospel. He does not talk about the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly enough, he talks about the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. All right, now that unit, Acts 1, 1 to 5, is the prologue to the book of Acts. Luke uses the prologic style to introduce both of his inspired canonical works. I want you to notice the symmetry between the two of them. There are two prologues, Luke 1, 1 to 4, Acts 1, 1 to 5. One of them is prospective, the other is retrospective. That is, the prologue to the gospel is a prospective anticipation of the book of Acts. In other words, the the things that Jesus taught and did and fulfilled are the basis for the book of Acts completing the rest of the story which means that the Acts prologue is retrospective to the gospel. Without the gospel, the Acts prologue doesn't occur. The events of the book of Acts does not occur. Without the book of Acts, the gospel is not finished. So you see the symmetry between the two of them. The prologues are there intentionally to emphasize that symmetry. Keep in mind that Luke is a Semite. He believes in duplication. He believes in repetition. He believes in underscoring things Perhaps for slightly different reasons, there is a difference with respect to the second prologue in Acts than in the first prologue, but nonetheless, he is elaborating upon his pattern of saying things in symmetrical parallel style, and he's doing it to tie his two works together prospectively and retrospectively. There's the whole package for you. The two books belong together. That they're separated by the Gospel of John is simply an accident of the canon. They weren't separated in their original uh, 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 unscrolling form. Yes, Randy, question. What's a Semite? A Semite? Yes. He's a Semitic person, a person from a Semitic culture, like Jewish culture. I thought he was Greek. He's not Greek. He may be Greek, but he's from a Semitic background. He's probably from Antioch. That's where he probably joins the uh, second missionary journey of Paul. So 
it's a mixed Jewish-Greek mix. That oh, he's very familiar with the Old Testament, as his quotations prove, both in the book of Acts and also in the Gospel. Right. So <clears throat> this, this means he's exposed to Semitic idiom. All right. The prologue is a unique purpose statement back to the prologue of the gospel. The prologue to the gospel is a unique purpose statement of why I have written this book statement. A statement which is exegetically rehearsed in Acts 1, 1 to 3. The first account is the gospel itself, as we pointed out which Luke composed to Theophilus, the addressee of the first account, as well as the second. It was composed in order to tell about Jesus, and specifically about what Jesus did and taught, his deeds and works. Deeds and works about what? Verse 3 of Acts 1, the kingdom of God. Luke's favorite designation for the message of Jesus. The deeds and words of Jesus, which he did and spoke until the day of his ascension to the right hand of the Father. The purpose of the gospel was to record for Theophilus in particular the historicity, the actuality, the veracity of the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God and bringer of the kingdom of God in heaven. So let's talk about those categories. Let's talk about historicity, actuality, which is a very modern term, and veracity. Historicity. What is it? It is the belief that a person is a real historical person. He existed in time and space history. And therefore, the events of that person's life, the acts and deeds associated with that person's career are real historical events. They actually occurred in objective time and space. That is a crucial character, (coughs) a crucial category, I should say, for Bible-believing Christians because, of course, there are those that do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth existed. There are still those people around. And there are more people that do not believe he did and said what he has done and said recorded in the Gospels, because the Gospels are fabrications, or much of them are inventions. Words have been put into Jesus' mouth. Virtually all liberal Christians believe that. Nor do they believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. They don't believe that Jesus ever said that. Those words were put into his mouth by later Christians who wanted to make a demigod out of it. So this question of historicity is extremely important to understanding how the modern church, particularly the modern liberal church, comes to the New Testament, comes to the Gospel of of Luke, comes to the prologue of Luke's Gospel. They don't believe it's true. They don't believe it's historical. They believe it's been fabricated, attenuated, and contrived for political, social, religious cultural, other purposes. There's always something else driving the engine. So historicity is extremely important for you who believe the Bible is true, for you who believe that what Luke writes is true, 
For you who believe that what Jesus said and did is true, because it actually occurred. So, Luke, in this prologue, is setting out his claim to be promoting the historicity of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Second, the word actuality. This is a more modern term for talking about genuine ethos of a person's career or person's being. That is, it's the actual state of real existence of a person. So, the actuality of Jesus of Nazareth is the actual real existence of Jesus of Nazareth and the deeds of Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the actuality of the reality of all that Luke has recorded about the life of Jesus of Nazareth. This actuality term vibrates with a post-existentialist audience. It vibrates with a more postmodern. The actuality of that person or the actuality of that event or the actuality, in other words, the actual existence of it. Once again, it is crucial to our own evangelical belief, to our own biblical belief, that this category is objectively real. The actuality of Christ is the real existence of him in terms of his actual behavior, his actual deeds, his actual words, his actual person. That resonates with some elements of postmodernism. And so it's crucial for us to affirm it. Finally, veracity. Veracity is a word you probably know means truthfulness. Luke, in this prologue, is claiming not only historicity, he's not only claiming actuality for the Lord Jesus and what he said and did, but he's claiming veracity for what he records about the Lord Jesus and what he said and did. Luke is writing true truth. He is not fabricating things. He is not inventing things. He is not falsifying the historical data or the actual facts of the life and doctrine or teaching of Christ, who is, for Luke, the very Son of God. These categories are implicit, if not explicit, in these four verses of chapter 1. Luke is setting out his, shall we say, raison d'etre, the reason for his own being an author, and the reason for Christ's being the Savior in four short verses so that there's no confusion about the fact that he's talking about historical person and real objective historical events, talking about actual existence of Jesus of Nazareth and the actual reality of his words and deeds, and he is telling truthfully all of those categories, all of those historical, actual, existential events. All right, well then how does Luke narrate the story of the historicity, actuality, veracity of Jesus of Nazareth? Verse 1 of Luke 1. If you're not back there, turn back 
to the first verse of the prologue. What does he tell us in this first verse? He tells us, first of all, that he takes his place alongside many others who have told the story already. Inasmuch as many have undertaken an account, he is going to join them. So is Luke familiar with Matthew and Mark and John? He may have been. This is an interesting question. He, of course, doesn't answer it for us. And Mark and Matthew and John don't answer it for us. It's a hotly debated question. But we at least have the right to ask it because Luke himself says, many have undertaken to do what I'm doing. So he obviously knew something about the records that had been compiled. Maybe he had a copy of what some regard as the earliest gospel, namely Mark's. Wouldn't have been impossible. He went to Rome with Paul. Mark and Peter were also in Rome eventually. Is it possible that Mark had written his gospel in Rome and that it was circulating there when Paul and Luke arrived? Is it possible? It is possible. These are intriguing questions. We don't have any dogmatic or final answers for them, but we look at this first verse and we say there were other records. He says so. Right there. So, he certainly is part, is Luke, of the multiform narrative of the life of Christ, which is recorded in the four Gospels. His I, or me in verse 3, joins or is one with the we or the us of verses 1 and 2. I have joined them, we together, have undertaken to compile accounts, plural. Now, the second thing he says here is that he compiles or gathers his narrative from multiple sources. He's going to detail those multiple sources in verses 2 and 3. But this is a hint in this first verse about his research. It's a hint that he has dug into the background. He's dug into the records. He's dug into the testimony. He's done his research on the records themselves and on the eyewitnesses' accounts of the words and deeds of Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised at this. Luke had a scientific background from from that era. He's called the beloved physician in the book of Colossians. He had a medical background, which would mean he was a, he was used to investigating things and to finding out where the origins of things came from. So we're not surprised that he does his research. He looks into the sources. 
He looks into the records. He looks into the oral testimonies. He looks into the eyewitness accounts. He compiles a whole mass of data from an exhaustive <clears throat> ransacking of the sources and the eyewitness testimony, the people of eyewitness testimony. Now, the third thing he says in this verse is he <clears throat> provides an account the New American Standard word there, he provides an account or a comprehensive narrative that is as comprehensive as his research has provided. And thus, this may be one reason why Luke's gospel is what? It is the longest gospel of the four. It is the longest, the largest of the four Gospels. More words in Luke's Gospel than in any other Gospel in the New Testament. Why? Potentially because of all of his research. Potentially. So he provides a cohesive narrative because he has ransacked everything that he can lay his hands on about what Christ said and did. And that means that his account will reflect the past, present, and future of the subject of the gospel. The past, present, and future of Christ Jesus and his proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God. He is going to be profuse in his record because he has examined as much of the record as he can possibly lay his hands on. He has intended to be as exhaustive as possible and therefore writes more than the other three gospel writers. Now, the next thing you'll note is that he produces, according to this first verse, a narrative of things. Randy? So what the ESV translates as orderly, the, the New American translates comprehensive. It, it, it translates it an account, but it has the sense of a comprehensive compilation. How could you be comprehensive about the life Comprehensive in terms of the sources that he uses, which we'll, we'll talk about in verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> so it's comprehensive in terms of his research database. <clears throat> no, he's not suggesting, as <clears throat> uh, contrary to the Apostle John, that the books of the whole world could not hold the story of Christ. He's not, he's not, he's simply talking about <clears throat> the database that he used. He's used it to create a comprehensive account. Not exhaustive, comprehensive. All right, what are these things? These things are the factual events which underscore the historicity, facticity, reality, actuality, objectivity, not the mythic, mythical, fabulistic, fictional, or fabricated story. These are the things 
of the redemptive historical events. Now, why do I suggest redemptive historical events? Why don't I just stick with historical events? Why don't I just stick with real events? Well, they are historical events. They are real events. We've already made that point. But why do I say redemptive historical? Because of that word in that first verse, <coughs> accomplished. Accomplished means redemptive historically. <coughs> accomplished or fulfilled. This term, this word, is extremely powerful. It is a powerful indication of the completion of the law and the prophets and the writings. That is, the completion or fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, if you'll turn over, keep your finger in chapter 1. If you turn over to Luke 24, the the last chapter of the book, verse 44, Let's take a look at that verse, which is a statement of Jesus himself. Jesus said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms or the writings must be fulfilled. Fulfilled. The word in 2444 is fulfilled. The word in 1-1 is accomplished. Both of those Greek words have the term plero in it. And the Greek word plero means fullness. So both of these terms translated into English on the one hand fulfilled and on the other accomplished have the idea of accomplishment or the fullness. They are cognates in the Greek. And that fullness means Redemptive historic fullness. The revelation of Luke's position on the relationship between the Old and New Testament. Revelation before the advent of Christ. Revelation on his advent. Revelation subsequent to his advent. All the revelation before his advent. The law, the prophets, the writings or the Psalms anticipates or projects his advent, all of the law and the prophets and the writing show his fulfillment or realization or accomplishment of the Old Testament. Jesus completes and fulfills the Old Testament scriptures to the full, to their fullness, to their accomplishment, to their realization. His acts and his deeds are a redemptive historical completion a redemptive historical accomplishment, a redemptive historical fulfillment. This person, Jesus of Nazareth, this person is the very narrative of the finality of redemptive history. The history of redemption is completed in him, fulfilled in him, accomplished in him, realized in him, He is the king of the kingdom of God. He is the Lord of the kingdom of heaven. He is the eternal son of the eternal father together with the eternal spirit and the fullness of the Godhead is in him. He had learned that from the apostle Paul. This term accomplished in verse 1 of chapter 1 at the very opening phrase of his prologue to his gospel is signaling that that old Testament era 
is behind us in terms of its full completion. Jesus is the answer to the Old Testament anticipation. And when he comes, that anticipation is over. You're not waiting for another millennial temple. You're not waiting for another priesthood. You're not waiting for another rigmarole of incense and and lifting up and putting down of sacrificial rigmarole. That's all gone. Jesus has fulfilled it. That's what Luke is telling you. That's what Jesus tells you in Luke 24, 44. That's what he told his disciples. Why do you keep going back to the beggarly elements of the former era? Why do you want priests? Why do you want temples? Why do you want cathedrals? Why do you want statues? Why do you want all this incense nonsense? Why do you want that junk? Why? Are you blind? Are you ignorant? Have you been bewitched? Have you been seduced by saying, I've got to have something I put my hands on. I've got to have something I can touch and feel. Or my religion doesn't mean anything. It's over. The better has come. The glory of that age has passed away. And whatever glory it has is pale in comparison to the glory of the Lord Jesus and what he has at his right hand right now. You've been set free from that. You've been released from that. Don't hanker for the leeks and rutabagas of Egypt. You don't want to go back. Luke didn't want to. And that's the reason he underscores the accomplishment of all things in the person and work of the Son of God. Could you outdo the Son of God with your religious ritual and rigmarole? Could you? Could you? Impossible. So, give me Jesus. That's enough. All right. Finally, on verse 1, things done among us. Luke and his us believers. Luke and his us believers are participants in this redemptive historical narrative fulfillment. In this narrative of Jesus Christ, in this narrative accomplishment of the Old Testament scriptures, they, they are participating. They identify with this narrative. They identify with this story. They identify with this Christ. They identify, as Luke identifies, with the us believers of whom he's among. Therefore, in this age between the advents of Christ, in this age, between the advents of Christ, first advent, second advent, first coming, second coming, in this age between the advents of Jesus Christ, we too, we too are participants in the narrative. Among us believers, 
among us believers. The Holy Spirit draws us into the events compiled in the account Luke has gathered in his research into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, who has brought us into the kingdom of God in heaven. That's what he came to do. That's what he says in Luke's gospel he's about. He's about bringing in the kingdom of God so that those who are here can be brought in to the kingdom of God that he brings in. We too, among the believers, the us believers, have been brought into the kingdom of God. Along with Luke, along with all other believers in Luke's day and in our day. And on that note, we'll take a break and return to verse 2 when we come back. All right, now we come to verse 2, where Luke is continuing the narrative of his research into the historicity actuality and veracity of Jesus. And here you observe he is underscoring eyewitness testimony. The testimony of eyewitnesses which extends back to the beginning of the life of Christ, from the beginning. For example, the record of the infancy narratives which we'll be considering over the next several months. Eyewitness testimony as the servants of the word, the word of God, have passed it on to us. Once again, the us, Luke, and other Christians, the plural pronoun. More than me, the us believers. So in this verse, when he writes, just as, he is acknowledging other narrative accounts of the life of Christ. That is, he knows about these and has used them as reliable sources. The eyewitnesses are obviously the disciples, later to be the apostles, the disciples who traveled with Jesus and after his ascension later became fellow servants of the word of God. To us, in that second verse, indicates that Luke is a second-generation Christian. Like the author of the Epistle of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, Luke distinguishes himself from those who heard and saw Jesus at the first. Now, what is passed on or handed down is both oral or verbal accounts as well as likely written accounts. I am suggesting that there were written accounts of the words and deeds of Jesus from which the apostles compiled their gospels. 
I can't give you a copy of them. I think they are incorporated into the Gospels, but I have no reason to doubt that this language of what was handed down includes written accounts as well as oral and verbal accounts. However, having said that, that they are using documentation that was in circulation. They are using verbal eyewitness testimony that was in circulation. They are using oral accounts that they listened to and were being repeated. Having said that, only that which has been inscripturated is authoritative. Only that which has been inscripturated is authoritative and inspired for believers. And what is inscripturated and inspired is Luke's record, Mark's record, Matthew's record, John's record, but no other oral traditions, no other alleged apostolic traditions, no other alleged sources, no other alleged written documents, no other supposedly special revelations con- conveyed to certain people by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but not recorded in the sacred scriptures are authoritative. None of that handed down tradition which is claimed for these extra biblical revelations is authoritative as the Roman Catholic Church falsely claims. Only what is written in the text, in the book, that alone, sola scriptura, that alone is authoritative, historical, actual, and voracious material. The only inspired rule of faith and practice is the record of the eyewitness testimony, oil, oral, and otherwise, which has been incorporated into the God-breathed New Testament autographa, originals. That and nothing else. Everything else is theory. Everything else is speculation. Everything else cannot be regarded as inspired. Everything else is potentially apocryphal. There is, therefore, no justification here in Luke 1-2 for extra-biblical oral or written traditions. You cannot come to this passage and claim that you have... <clears throat> copies or or word handed down traditions that go all the way back to the apostolic age. That is not true. That is not verifiable. That is not inspired. That is not scripture alone. Sola scriptura, not scriptura et traditio. Scripture and tradition. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, not Scripture plus tradition. Luke makes the eyewitness narrative and the narrative relayed by the disciples his narrative and nothing else. Sola Luca. All right, verse 3. Now Luke indicates the thoroughness of his research. Here in this verse, 
He tells us that he investigated everything carefully. That is, he thoroughly exhausted the eyewitness testimony, the oral testimony, the written testimony, which he had perused, which he had uncovered, so as to satisfy himself of the credibility of the life and claims of Jesus of Nazareth. But he also did this to benefit from it, so that he could write out his own narrative account of the life and claims of Jesus Christ and enter into it. This is not just an exercise in writing a narrative. This is an exercise in writing what one lives in. This is, so to speak, writing my life story in the life story of Jesus of Nazareth. He is an independent witness. He is an independent compiler using the testimony and documents of many others. All the available evidence has been discovered, uncovered, and used by him. He has accurately or carefully, the word in the New American Standard Version. This is an important word. He investigated everything carefully, you'll notice in that verse. That Greek word, which is akribos, implies exact, precise, rigorous accuracy. There's a very rare English word that's derived from that Greek word. It's called acribia, A-C-R-I-B-I-A, acribia. It means an exactly rigorous, accurate, and carefully compiled account. That's what Luke has done. He has ascertained the accuracy of the eyewitnesses and the veracity of the written sources so as to write it out in an orderly manner or in consecutive order as the New American Standard indicates. An orderly sequence for his friend Theophilus, whom he labels at the end of this third verse, most excellent. Most excellent Theophilus. Now that most excellent language is perhaps an honorific, meaning he recognizes the status of Theophilus. He honors him with that title, most excellent. Or it's a courtesy, potentially a courtesy to his patron or his sponsor, the one who has sponsored his work. Observe that the word for consecutive order, which is present <clears throat> here in the New American Standard Translation, the Greek word kathexes, kathexes rather, suggests a systematic narrative presentation, a systematic story presentation of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So what about Theophilus? What about this man who is the addressee of two books of the canon? Two books of the inspired New Testament. His name, Theophilus, means literally lover of God. Is he one of the God-fearers, like those in the book of Acts? That is, Gentiles who honor God, but do so from natural revelation or some smatterings of special revelation, 
or were attracted to Jewish monotheism out of pagan polytheism. They attracted to Jewish monotheism and they were acquainted with Old Testament revelation. What about Theophilus? That Greek word kathexes is a word from which we get catechized. Is Theophilus being catechized? Is Luke distinguishing Theophilus from the we or us pronouns which separates Theophilus from other Christians, although he is being instructed, cathexes, in the Christian faith? Or is he actually a Christian? who wishes to know more of the details of the story of Christ. And so the editorial, we or us, includes Theophilus. Theophilus is one of us. He is with us Christian believers. This is an interesting question, and it's highly debated. So let's think a little bit more about it. Luke will address or direct his record of the ongoing narrative of Christ Jesus to Theophilus by way of Christ's own narrative story, gospel, and by way of the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostle, the rest of the story in the book of Acts. He is thoroughly acquainting him with the full-orbed story, the two-fold story, life, work of Christ, and life, work of the disciples, particularly the Apostle Paul, who was his companion. So, it is possible Theophilus is becoming a Christian, Cathexes being catechized, But it is also possible that he's already a Christian simply being drawn into the fullness of the story which he is learning in its completion from Luke for the first time. And that's the reason Luke is writing to him. Giving him the advantage of telling him the whole story. Now the name Theophilus is not unique. It's common. It's a common (coughs) Greek and Jewish name from the 3rd century B.C. on, and we have it in the Greek papyri, which have been discovered and preserved. Notice that Theophilus is not an actor in Luke's narrative drama. He's only a recipient of the drama. He's not an actor in the drama. He's only a recipient of the drama, but I want to modify or qualify that statement a little later. Let me quote Roland Menet, whose massive commentary was just published about a year ago and is a tour de force. This is what Menet says about Theophilus. Theophilus designates the one who is a friend of God, but also indissolubly 
the one of whom God is the friend. Yes. Yes, he's got it. He's got it. His name means friend of God. But it's because he's the one whom God has befriended. So I think that Theophilus is already a Christian. I do not think with many others that he is a seeker or one who is being catechized in preparation for baptism. I think he's already in and he wants to grow. He wants to learn. Now, of course, Maynay and I and others who also take this position can't prove it. But it is an interesting light on why Theophilus is prominent at the inception, at the opening of both of Luke's canonical works. He is the first character mentioned in both. And yet we know very little about him to characterize him, aside from the fact that he was well-educated. The Greek in these first four verses of chapter 1 is stupendous. It is some of the finest Greek in the whole New Testament, which means that Theophilus was educated enough to understand this polished Greek. He had the academic background to perceive the nuances that Luke was putting into this vocabulary. He may have actually been a high Greco-Roman social individual or political or academic individual. Quite possible. And he knows paganism. He knows pagan ritual and practice, which he finds meaningless and may have been attracted to Judaism because of the simplicity of its worship and its piety not like the piety of the Greco-Roman cults, the emperor cult, etc. And thus, he was open to the more excellent way of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, the more excellent way of Christianity to fulfill, to complete, and to transcend not only Old Testament Judaism, but to also displace and replace Greco-Roman paganism. He comes as a learned person of high standing, high educational standing, he comes to Luke, he comes to Christ, he comes to Luke, he comes to the Christian church, he comes to the family of God, he comes to the kingdom of God in heaven. Verse 4. And because he comes, he is willing to be taught. Surely this is remarkable. A person comes to Christ, comes to the apostles, comes to the writers of the New Testament, comes to the church willing to be taught. Willing to be taught about the person and the words and the deeds of Jesus Christ and eager to be taught. Eager to digest the longest gospel of all. Eager to add to it the book of Acts on top of it, eager, hungry, thirsty to be drawn into the word of God, to be instructed about life in the kingdom of God and the drama and passion 
of that kingdom, interested in the mission of the church of the triune God as it moved through the Greco-Roman world of his pagan past. Cathexes, beyond catechism, he wants to know all the orderly record of the life of Christ and the life of the apostles and the life of the church and the mission of the church. He wants to understand it all. He wants to make it his own possession. He is eager, longing to learn the truth taught by Luke and more. And more. Because Luke was eager, hungry to be taught by Paul. Theophilus, Theophilus rides on the coattails of that knowledge and understanding. Theophilus gets to hear from Luke, who gets to hear from Paul, who gets to hear from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now there is a hunger to fill your soul. There is a thirst to be quenched by the treasures of the kingdom of God in heaven. There is a desire to learn, to learn of the supreme and preeminent, surpassing riches of the knowledge and love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, by the operation of the Holy Spirit working upon this book. The text of this book, Old and New Testament alike. There is the hunger to learn, to be taught, to be instructed, to penetrate beyond the obvious, to graduate from Christian kindergarten, to grow up into the fullness of the stature of the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not to be content with veggie tales, but to desire the meat of the Word of God, the steak of the Scriptures, and to chew and meditate and devour and feed upon the depths and the riches of Christ Jesus. That's what Theophilus wanted. Wanted to be taught. Now some biblical theological reflections. These are narrative reflections, and I come back to my statement at the beginning of the first hour in which I am defending a narrative approach to the prologue, which may seem bizarre and strange because it doesn't appear to be any story in the prologue itself. 
Let me try to enlighten you. Luke's gospel prologue anticipates the gospel. The deeds, acts, words of Jesus up to the time of his ascension. The gospel is a doorway to the narrative of the person and work of Christ. Or the prologue is the doorway to the narrative of the person and work of Christ. Now, the Acts prologue presumes the gospel and anticipates the rest of the story. It's the doorway to the advance of the gospel of Christ by means of the apostolic mission. Simple enough. But notice the doorway to the narrative language that I've used. Prologue is the doorway to the narrative of the gospel of the life and deeds of Christ. Prologue to the... Book of Acts is the doorway to the life and deeds of the apostles under the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel Prologue, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, is a formal, introductory, and synthetic narrative. It's a narrative in its own right. It's a narrative about Luke's own narrative. The object is Christ Jesus. The subject is Luke. And many other Christians, verse 1, including the first narrative character of the book, Theophilus, verse 3. The narrative story of Christ and his kingdom, the kingdom of God, folds Luke into its drama as it embraces with identification and participation many Christians plus Theophilus. Jew and Gentile participants in the drama who have received forgiveness of sins in their repentance, Luke 24, verse 47, have died together with Christ and have been raised again to newness of life in him, Luke 24, 46, a la the Apostle Paul's interpretation of the death and resurrection of Christ, are participants in the fullness of God's promise of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Luke 24, verse 49, and thus heavenly heirs and joint heirs of the kingdom of God, Acts 28, verse 31. The narrative of Luke's prologue to the gospel presupposes participation, inclusion, and identification with the narrative of Jesus the Christ. The prologue is Luke's narrative about his participation in the story he records. Could he have done all that research and not said, I believe it? Could he have done all that digging, eyewitness listening, verbal encounters? Could he have done it all and not said, I want in? Impossible. He tells you that it was impossible right there in those first four verses. He and his readers, us, us, among us, he and his readers are participants in the redemptive history of the things fulfilled and accomplished in the midst of their life experience, their own existential drama. He and his readers join the story which the eyewitnesses have seen and heard. The words and deeds of Jesus belong to their story in his story via Luke's story identifying with their story. This is a seamless 
revolving story. Jesus' story folds me into his story. My story folds others into Jesus' story. Luke's story folds many other Christians into the story. Because the authenticity of the story is in the drama and the narrative of the story above all stories. Christ's story. Luke and his readers are folded into the narrative hand-me-downs. Verse 2 of those servants of God's word who talked and walked and listened and learned that Jesus lived the narrative of their story, albeit uniquely, so they could live the narrative of his story, albeit mystically. He and his readers are united to the research of Luke's narrative so that from the beginning of the story of Jesus to its end, they might find the beginning and end of their story. This has been written to you that you may enter into the story that I have entered into, that the drama of my narrative, which is the drama of Christ's narrative, can be the drama of your narrative. It is your story, because in Christ, your story has been fulfilled. Your story has been accomplished. Your story has been realized. Luke immerses himself in the narrative of Christ's story, because he narrates himself into the narrative of of Christ's story, making the manifold story his own. He finds fulfilled in himself what Christ has fulfilled in bringing the Old Testament history of redemption to accomplishment. He becomes a servant of the Word alongside those servants of the Word who were there from the beginning. Luke is being taught that he may teach, even as Theophilus is being taught that he may teach. Trusting the reliable words and deeds of Jesus so that he, Luke, may be identified as reliable and trustworthy. This is a magnificent statement not merely of a formal introduction to a long gospel narrative, but this is a magnificent statement of personal testimony. I, Luke, the disciple of Jesus, the follower of Jesus, I, Luke, am telling you my story in the first four verses of this gospel. Now, Theophilus, and others among us, believers, come along for the whole narrative. Come along, beginning in verse 5, for the rest of the story of Jesus. And then let me take you through the doorway of the next phase. The story of the Christ, the Christ story going to pagan Gentiles.
Randy. Yeah, I, it kind of reminds me of the, the Christmas Carol, Little Town of Bethlehem, those fears of all the years. I met in the tonight, same kind of idea there. Or am I off target? Oh, it's close. It, <clears throat> the idea here that I'm emphasizing is that this is not merely prologic formal literature. This is an existential drama being described for your invitation, with Theophilus' invitation, for the invitation of the other us believers who are cited here. In other words, I want to put some vitality into this because the vitality of Luke shows his life is here. And that is unlike anything in any of the prologues of the Greco-Roman culture. All the others are outside observers. Luke is writing this prologue from the inside. He's an inside experiencer. That makes sense? Yeah, that, that lyric never made much sense to me, but it, now it makes more sense to me in light of what you said. That's what I guess I was driving at. Good. We're, we're moving ahead together. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Did you say that Luke had a sponsor? <clears throat> it's possible that Theophilus is his sponsor. <clears throat> Namely, <clears throat> he's his patron in the sense that he's perhaps put up some money for the process. Uh, he's helped him out with finding uh, <clears throat> the, the records that he's looking for. Possibly. In other words... When he calls him most excellent, he may be referring to him uh, with with courtesy as one who had helped him in the work. You thought who? I thought God was the gospel writers. Yes, God is the ultimate ultimate inspirer, but Luke is gathering up the information that God inspires uh, for him to write. So he's gathering up information. He's listening to people that talk to Jesus. He didn't talk to Jesus. He wasn't there. So he's listening to people that did talk to Jesus. He wants to hear everything they have to say. And then what he records is what God has inspired for, for inscripturation. But it's the pen of Luke. It's the, it's the diligence of Luke that's gathering it all up. Yes. Robert. Okay, you alluded to uh, the high polish of the Greek. How does that compare with uh, Hebrews? It's probably a little bit better, but it's only four verses. Okay? It's not uh, it continued throughout the rest of the gospel. The rest of the gospel becomes somewhat common. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say... It's, uh, let me use the technical term koine. It's, it's more common koine. But this, these four verses are really quite... This is high... Academic. This is actually only one verse. So these four verses are one verse long with subordinate clauses, which are perfectly, uh, <clears throat> perfectly ordered. So it, it really is a remarkable accomplishment. Some, some, Luke really knew how to write high class Greek here. And he shows it. And I think he shows it for the sake of Theophilus's benefit. Is there a question? Ben, did you have a question? No, okay. Yes, Scott. I'm just wondering if you thought about the last word in verse 4, asphalion, which means assurance. Um, 
I'm thinking about that in terms of the theory that Luke Timothy Johnson develops from that word, and he plays out through the narrative of Luke Acts. I don't know if you thought about that or if you have any comments on that or tell you what that is. I do not. I'm not aware of that. His theory is that because of the way the narrative of Luke Acts works, that part of the narrative is to show that while Israel rejects the gospel in Luke's gospel, that many do accept in Acts. And so he thinks perhaps Theophilus is thinking that God really isn't saving Israel as he had prophesied in the Old Testament, and that if God isn't saving Israel as he promised, then how will I know he's going to be faithful to Gentiles? And so what Luke does is he writes part of it is to assure Theophilus, and he assures him by showing that indeed God has fulfilled his promises to the Jews, and so he will indeed fulfill his promises to the Gentiles. Yeah, Manet's commentary, as you know, is subtitled Gospel to the Children of Israel. And Manet's thesis is that Luke is writing to the eschatological Israel, the Jew-Gentile Israel of God at the end of the age, which, of course, I like very much. I'm not sure that I can fit that in with what Luke Timothy Johnson is doing. So I would, you know, I'd have to think about it and weigh it. Because, of course, the other option here is James Edwards' commentary, Edwards over at University of Spokane just wrote a commentary for Erdman's on Luke, which is an okay commentary, heavily dependent on a German commentary by Michael Walter. And what Michael Walter says in that commentary is going to be translated this year. It's going to be a monster by Baylor University Press. But at any rate, Walter's theory is that this gospel is being written to an indescribable ethnic mix, whatever that means, which, you know, ends up with no accurate designation and consequently is kind of an existential hodgepodge. So I don't want to get on to the side issues, which I think sidetrack from the veracity and the literary accuracy of what he's saying here. And the rest of it, I feel, is theories of attempting to accommodate the text of modern presuppositions and expectations of what religion in the 21st century should be. That's a long answer to it. I haven't thought about that. So you're asking me to think about something I haven't thought about. All right. Well, next week we'll start with verse 5. Shall we close in prayer this evening? Our Father, it is our testimony that having read the records, having heard the story, that we relish 
the privilege of being joined to the narrative of the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, and the ongoing work of Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for blessing us with that wonderfully gracious identity. And so as we realize the richness of it more and more, will you help us in our faults? Will you help us in our failures? Will you help us in our doubts? Will you help us to remember that our story is hidden with Christ in God and by the Holy Spirit? We have been united and bound unto him in an eschatological, everlasting, and eternal story. A story of glory in the kingdom of God in heaven, world without end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.